This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Excalibur. We here at the Word of the Week love ourselves a good magical weapon. What gamer doesn't? What fantasy adventurer's eyes don't light up gleefully when they open that treasure chest, reach inside, and, like a Hylian elf, hoist aloft a shimmering sword or spear with a name like Narsal or Graham or Master Mune or Hurung Gugnir or... or... Gabolg? Wow. That's really a thing, huh? These internet top lists dig surprisingly deep sometimes. Every mythology across the world has a host of mythical spears and swords and axes and bows with fantastic names and even more fantastic powers. And as fun as it would be to turn this week's episode into a survey of mystical weapons from every corner of the globe, our producer and performer rejected that idea when we included the magical Aztec Atlatl Shui Kawat, which was used by the Wheat something to slay his sister, Koyofwa, you're kidding, right? Anyway, the point is, those sorts of guided tours through world mythology can be fun. But sometimes it's fun to dig deep into one particular topic, one particular legend, to see how it has evolved. And we'll hold those other stories in reserve for another time and give our poor put-upon producer some time to brush up on his Nawat pronunciation. Not gonna happen. Because what separates a truly great magical item from just another dull plus one long sort of boringness is the fact that it has a name and a history. Because that's what makes the adventurer feel like the latest chapter in a story greater than themselves rather than just the recipient of a lucky roll on a random treasure table. Of course, in fantasy games like Dungeons and Dragons, such legendary weapons usually have one singular story that's always true. Whereas in real life, ancient weapons of legend might have multiple complicated backstories as their tales have been told, retold, revised, changed, adopted by other cultures, retold again, adapted to a religious doctrine, written down, rewritten, adapted for an animated feature-length film that had its major theme stolen for a young adult fantasy series, and adapted for a comedic parody film. Oh and adapted for a stage musical. And ultimately, that's what makes the magical item truly exciting. Not the chance to be a part of its story, the chance to make it a part of our story. There is no better example of the evolution of our myths, legends, and histories than that of the magical sword Excalibur, or Caliburn, or Kaledvulsh, which might have been a cousin to the sword Kaledbolg, and which was pulled forth from a stone by King Arthur, which thereby made him King of Britain. Well, at least the Welsh. Or the Britons of Wales. Unless he was given the sword by a magical fairy queen of Avalon known as the Lady of the Lake, and that made him King of the England. Except what really made him King of the England was the defense of England against the Saxons, who were themselves from England. Because England wasn't really a country then. And Arthur really ended up being king of the Welsh, well, of the Britons of Wales. And then he ruled England, Wales, from his great castle Camelot, which was probably just an unimpressive little hill fort. And that's if he even existed. Confused? We're not surprised. Because if you're familiar with the sword of Excalibur and the king who carried it, and you're American like we are, 
you probably got all of your information from one of two sources. And if you're a gamer and you're not as old as we, we can bet on which of the two you were quoting continuously at the game table. And it's not the cartoon. The cartoon we're referring to here, in case you haven't figured it out, is Walt Disney's The Sword in the Stone, a 1963 animated feature-length film adaptation of the first of four books in T.H. White's The Once and Future King series, which was a retelling of the myth of King Arthur. Well, technically, the book The Sword in the Stone was published alone in 1938, and then it was republished later as part of the tetralogy in 1958 which just goes to show how muddy these mythical waters have become. Now, we're going to spoil the story of the sword and the stone here, briefly, because we have to be honest with you, the movie is kind of bland. Basically, once upon a time, there was this king of England named Uther, but he died and left no heir. But then magically, there appears this sword, that's Excalibur, stuck in an anvil in London. And it has this inscription that says that whoever can pull the sword out of the anvil is the rightful king. And since no one can get it out, there is no king, and England falls into a dark age. Years later, this bumbling, useless, loser kid named Wart, who unsurprisingly turns out to be Arthur, ends up through various plot contrivances as the student of a wizard named Merlin. Arthur and Merlin turn into fish and birds and squirrels for reasons... And then Arthur pulls out the sword, and he's king. And then all of the other reindeer who used to laugh and call Wart names come to love him. And his name went down in history. Now, here's the thing. That is part of the legend of King Arthur. Well, it's definitely derived from the legend. Disney only lightly alludes to some parts and glosses over others. But the key elements are all there. According to the most common and popular version of the legend, and we'll talk about where that one came from in a bit, Uther Pendragon was the ruler of a tribe of people known as the Britons. That's B-R-I-T-O-N-S. If you want to get technical, they were called the Celtic Britons, and really, they were a collection of tribes descended from the Celts. But to really understand this whole thing, we have to explain something about the history of the island of Great Britain and its collision with the history of the Roman Empire. Now, you know from some of our previous episodes, like Ogma, that the British islands, including Ireland and Great Britain, were peopled by various tribes known collectively as the Celts. The Goidelic or Gaelic Celts ruled most of Ireland, and the Britonic Celts ruled most of Great Britain. There was also a tribe in the north of Great Britain known as the Picts, and scholars argue over whether to call them Britons or not. But even if they were basically Britons at one point, they wouldn't be for long. Now, these Celtic tribes were loosely unified by their common cultures and languages, and their territories expanded and contracted as tribes fought for land and joined or left various tribal alliances. And then the Romans arrived. In 43 CE, the Roman Empire invaded the British Isles and conquered most of southern Great Britain and parts of northern Great Britain and southern Scotland. The Britons who came under Roman rule were allowed to keep their land, but they were ruled by Roman governors and the fight against the Roman invasion and the subsequent occupancy unified the British tribes. Cultural diffusion, including the spread of Christianity from Rome to the British tribes, gradually transformed those people. Not so the northern Picts nor many of the Gaelic Celts, who remained independent and held on to their own Celtic traditions. Gradually, Rome lost interest in Britain, 
Even before their formal retreat from Britain in the beginning of the 5th century CE, many of the British lands were effectively functioning independently from Roman rule. And after their retreat, the British tribes and the other peoples of the British Isles were free to do what they would. Or they would have been, if not for the invasion of the Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons were Germanic tribespeople from Europe who had been displaced and forced to spread as a result of their own wars with the Roman Empire. And those tribes established numerous kingdoms along the eastern coast of England. Meanwhile, the Gaelic Celts of Scotland began expanding through northern England, conquering the Picts and spreading south. The Britons found their lands shrinking against the Gaelic and Anglo-Saxon encroachments until they found themselves mostly boxed into the Kingdom of Britonia in modern-day Wales and scattered lands on the southern and western shores of Great Britain. Some Britons also established kingdoms on the European mainland, such as Brittany in modern-day France. And it was during this period, as the Saxons and the Scots were conquering more of their lands, that the Britons turned to Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon. Uther was the king of the Britons during these troubled times, but his counselor, the wise magician Merlin, foresaw further division and strife to come. He predicted that when Uther died, the Britons would fracture and there would be a great war over who should claim the throne. And that war would allow the Saxons and Gaels to conquer them once and for all. So he advised Uther to hide his heir, Arthur, and raise him in secret. Merlin didn't want some uppity usurper to kill the kid before he was strong enough to claim the throne if Uther died. And while Arthur was still a baby, now safely hidden away, Uther did die. And there was a great conflict over who would be king. And now Merlin had a problem. With Arthur's pedigree thusly concealed, he was safe for a few years until he was powerful enough to claim the throne and keep it. But how could Arthur prove his right to rule and unify the Britons? Thus, Merlin used his magic to plunge a sword into a stone, and he inscribed on the sword that it could only be drawn by the true King of England. No one could draw the sword, of course. No one except Arthur. And once he did, he gathered a group of powerful and loyal knights and led them against the Saxons. At the Battle of Baden Hill, Arthur struck a decisive blow against the Germanic Saxons. After several more victories, he secured the borders of the British Kingdom and halted the Saxon incursions. And this part, it seems, really did happen. Though scholars debate whether Arthur was a real historical figure, they do know that the Battle of Baden Hill and numerous other battles really did happen, and they eventually led to a stalemate between the Britons, the Saxons, and the Scots. At least for a while. But the thing is, that sword in the stone was not Excalibur. Excalibur was a different sword. And that brings us to the other popular source of gamer knowledge of the Arthurian legend. And that knowledge arose from a very unlikely source, a sextet of British television writers who had no idea what the heck they wanted to do with themselves. But they were sure it would be pretty cool when they did it. We're speaking, of course, of the Monty Python comedy troupe and their hit film that would eventually become a Broadway musical, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The story begins in the early 1960s. That's the story of the Monty Python film, not the story of the Holy Grail. We'll get back to that. And it starts at Cambridge University and Oxford University. At Cambridge, three members of a performing troupe known as the Footlight Society became friends. John Cleese, Graham Chapman, and Eric Idle. Meanwhile, at Oxford... The writers Terry Jones and Michael Palin also met while working together with various campus performance troops. 
When the Footlight Society went on tour in America, they befriended a writer from a humor magazine called Help, Terry Gilliam. By chance, this group of six talented comedians, performers, and writers met time and again while working on various television projects in England. Idle, Palin, Jones, and Gilliam were involved at one point in a television series for children called Do Not Adjust Your Set. Cleese and Chapman, meanwhile, collaborated on other projects together, and their collaborations earned them a coveted chance to create a show of their own. Cleese wanted to work with his old friends, and they had gotten to know Michael Palin and Terry Jones, so they decided to team up and do something cool, something fresh, something new, comedy like nothing the world had ever seen. Maybe sketch comedy, but cranked up to 11. Somehow. And that's what they went into their pitch meeting with the BBC with. Absolutely nothing. They knew what they did would be amazing, but they didn't know what it was going to be. And the BBC took the sort of risk that no television network or movie studio would ever take these days. They went with it. And thus was born, seemingly named at random, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And they were right. It was amazing, new, cool, and completely indescribable. See, apart from the surreal and absurd humor, what made Monty Python's Flying Circus unique was that it completely abandoned any sense of narrative structure. Sketches rarely had a coherent beginning and even more rarely had a concrete ending. They simply cut off at the moment of highest humor. In fact, the team vowed never to end a sketch in a way that was remotely expected. At least that's what the experts say. But really, what made them work is that they were a bunch of naturally funny people who could afford to rid themselves of all structural, narrative, and comedic constraints because whatever they actually did would be hilarious. Many people have tried since to do their deconstructive postmodern sort of humor, and no one has pulled it off. After the success of their weekly comedy sketch program in the late 1960s, they produced their first movie. Essentially, it was just a collection of the best sketches from their show, reshot and compiled as a ploy to export their humor to America. That was in 1971. And it worked. And that success, and the continued success of their series, led them to adapt the legend of King Arthur to their own brand of comedy. And in 1975, released their feature-length film, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And that movie picks up the Arthur legend where the sword and the stone leaves off. Well, a few years later. The thing was that after the defense of Britonia from the Saxons, the Britons still weren't quite a united people. And Merlin, who was now Arthur's advisor, was troubled. Under Merlin's guidance, Arthur built a fort at Camelot. And if you have any images of a soaring castle like Hogwarts, remember, this was the post-Roman Empire Dark Age between 500 and 800 CE, when Mott and Bailey construction was still just catching on on the mainland, and wouldn't be brought to England by the Normans for several hundred years. England was basically in the Iron Age at this point. Arthur built a fort on a hill. And there he gathered the knights who had helped him fight off the Saxons. In addition to building his fortress, he also followed Merlin's advice and sought out the Lady of the Lake, Nemu. And this is where things start to get very murky for the legend. See, according to the myths, the Lady of the Lake was actually Merlin's former apprentice. 
Merlin had met her at the Fountain of Brittany and had fallen in love with the water nymph. He agreed to teach her all of his magic, and he did so. And she was a very good student. In fact, she gradually became more powerful than Merlin himself. She even briefly imprisoned Merlin out of jealousy. And she also became Arthur's advisor, replacing Merlin. But gradually, with retellings of the myth, the Lady of the Lake, Nemu, was split into two characters. The Lady of the Lake, who was also the surrogate mother of the Knight Lancelot in a story that would take too long to recount, and Morgan Le Fay, a powerful sorceress and foil to Merlin and eventually to King Arthur. Complicating this further is the fact that the name Nemu seems to be derived from the name of the Roman and Greek Nemesine, who was the mother of the nine river nymph Muses and who had a habit of popping up in myths to hand out magical weapons. But older tellings of the story identify her more closely with the Celtic water goddess Caventina. Now, Caventina was an interesting figure because she was associated with the mercurial and moody nature of water itself, and also associated with luck and chance. So it was a common practice to throw things like coins, weapons, and other valuables into bodies of water to earn the favor of Lady Luck. Yes, that's where both the name Lady Luck and the practice of pitching pennies into wells and fountains came from. Anyway, Nemu or Caventina or whatever had this sword, Excalibur. Well, it was originally named Caliburn, and that name merely means irresistible cut. And when Arthur sought her out at Merlin's behest, she presented him the sword. And when Arthur drew the sword from its scabbard, it blinded his foes. Beyond that, it had pretty much the powers you'd expect from a magic sword. That is, if you cut or stab someone with it, they would get injured or die. See, interestingly enough, except for the blinding radiance thing, the sword was just a symbol of Arthur's power. It was the scabbard that had the real magic. The person who bore the scabbard of Excalibur could not die. If injured, they would not even bleed. And it was only after the scabbard was stolen from Arthur by Morgan Le Fay and thrown into the lake that Arthur was able to die. See, after claiming Excalibur, building Camelot, and gathering his knights, Arthur tried his darndest to be a beacon of chivalry, order, and just rule. And he held his knights to the same high standard. But England was still kind of a mess of infighting. And so, to unify the people once and for all, Arthur and his knights undertook a great quest to find the legendary Holy Grail, a cup that had been used to catch Jesus Christ's blood at his crucifixion and which supposedly would grant magical power up to and including everlasting life to whoever had it, but which had been lost centuries before. But they never found it. And meanwhile, civil war broke out amongst the Britons. Arthur, having lost the scabbard of Excalibur, was stabbed by his traitorous nephew Mordred. Mortally wounded, Arthur was sent by boat to the fairy otherworld of Avalon, and the sword Excalibur was cast back into the water and reclaimed by the Lady of the Lake. That's the end of the story. Except this story is only the modern version. As we alluded to with our discussion of the Lady of the Lake, the actual legend of Excalibur and King Arthur is much more complicated. And that's because the story has been told and retold and romanticized numerous times since it was first written down. And even worse, it was told and retold many times before it was written down. 
See, the first reliable reference to King Arthur comes from a history of Britain, written by the Welsh monk Nennius in 830 CE. And he didn't call Arthur a king. He simply referred to him as a warrior who fought 12 battles against the Saxons, including the battle at Mount Baden. It was another Welshman, a cleric, by the name of Geoffrey of Monmouth, who claimed Arthur had actually been a king in a book he wrote in 1133 CE about the history of the kings of England. And he claimed his information came from an ancient Celtic manuscript that he and only he had access to. But still, he was just a warrior king who'd fought off the Saxons. Done and done. And then things started to get weird. Because in the 1100s, chivalry and feudalism were starting to take hold across Europe and with them the idea of the chivalrous knight. And two French authors wrote a few versions of the Arthurian legend with the Iron Age Celtic warriors reimagined as chivalrous knights despite defending a kingdom that existed 500 years before chivalry was a thing. The quest for the Holy Grail, a popular legend from the time, was first mentioned in 1180 by French author Robert de Boron of Burgundy. An English priest added the bit about Arthur going to Avalon and possibly not dying from his wounds in 1200 CE. And all of these different accounts were swallowed up in 1485 in one of the first printed books to ever be published, La Morte d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur, by Sir Thomas Mallory. And that was the account that became the basis for all of the modern retellings, up to and including Monty Python's Broadway musical Spamalot. And each author who retold the story polluted it with more and more concepts from their own modern age. And that's how Camelot became a castle and Arthur became a holy knight on a holy quest instead of just a guy with a sword who defended his people from other guys with swords. Of course, it gets even muddier when you consider that the story of Arthur also had at least 300 years of being passed down through oral traditions before it was written down in 830 CE and much of it was based on Celtic legends that were older still than that. And so you can see, any author who takes up the story today, just like any adventurer who finds a legendary magical weapon, is just adding another chapter onto a long, complicated story that's far bigger than themselves. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 